you look up the definition of the word shrapnel, it reads that shrapnel are pieces left over from an exploded bomb, shell, or mine. Shrapnel, the pieces left over. And in talking to the people who fight our wars on our behalf, I think it's a good definition as far as it goes, as long as you realize that sometimes, oftentimes, the metal, the ordnance, the casings, they aren't the only thing that gets broken into these pieces. So on a very special Snap Judgment, we proudly present Shrapnel. Shrapnel. Amazing stories of collateral damage. My name is Glenn Washington. And Snappers, there is so much heart, love, and soul in this episode. Please know that you're listening to Snap Judgment. Stories on this episode involve graphic imagery. Listener discretion is advised. We're going to begin with an American military vet who served with the Marines in Iraq. When he returned to the States, Brian Vargas was not in a great place. And when he first met his therapist, Dr. Shauna Springer, he wasn't really ready to open up. Stamp judgment. There are things that you do that society here in the States would put you away for a very, very, very long time and throw away the key. There are things that you do in a war zone that changes the makeup of your understanding of right and wrong and morals and humanity. And so going in those first few times to see Shauna, my therapist, you're like, how do I tell this person this? I was still only maybe a few years post my injury. I mean, I got shot on January 17, 2007. We were going house to house in a city in Iraq. We were in Ambar province. Uh, we did night movements because it was safer. Well, as soon as daybreak kind of happened, we kind of started taking sporadic AK fire. We were taking rounds. And after a while, our corpsman was up top, and we were like, hey, come down. You shouldn't be up there because if you end up getting shot, we're all kind of screwed. So I went up and took his place up there with myself, Vigil, and David. I mean, I was very blatant as far as, you know, being on the rooftops without any gear on, uh, just kind of antagonizing the... Uh, the enemy that's out there watching us and standing on the rooftop, uh, you know, flipping everybody off, like, whatever. I just stopped caring. Um, I really, uh, uh, I got to the point where you felt this, like, untouchable type thing. And I, I wasn't the smart. I definitely shouldn't have been behaving that way. But day after day, that'll kind of change your perspective on things. There was a sniper that came out, right? You can tell the difference between a sniper and 
regular AK fire because it's more direct. The last thing I remember is standing, looking through my uh, my RCO, my, my scope, right, and uh, looking for the sniper. I came to. I could see Carson's mouth moving, and it's like yelling, Vargas is hit, Vargas is hit. And I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, Vargas is hit, okay. And I look down, I just see a whole bunch of blood, I mean, covered in blood, and <laughs> I was like, Vargas is hit. I mean, it took forever to kind of understand that I was Vargas, and that I had been hit. My face was ripped in half. I have strap on my tongue, eye, face, cheeks, three herniated discs in my back. Getting shot and blown up is, uh, it's life changing and it's something that, you know, lives with me every day. Um, it's something where when I wake up in the morning and I'm brushing my teeth and I look in that mirror and I see my reflection, uh, and I see that scar on my face. It tingles, it, it, it's numbing, it tightens up, it sends these nerves going haywire in my face. It makes my, you know, face contract. Every day, it's, you know, from my head to my toes, it's, it's living through a pain that I know sucks. Um, so I was heavily medicated. I had 15 different bottles of medication, um, everything from, you know, here's something for your anger, here's something for the side effects you get from that one, then here's for your sleep, and here's for the voices you hear, here's for the things you see, here's for, you know, the pain, here's the other one for, for fun, just because we're going to try it out. When I had gotten the news that another friend had um, committed suicide, it was a... Uh, I essentially I walked into that office and sat down on that couch I always sit on the little it's like a little one person little chair I couldn't hold it in anymore I just started crying got very emotional I've seen so many people kill themselves I'm thinking what do I need to do to not feel so numb right now I would come to her and I would tell her you know I'm driving pretty fast on the freeway going about 60 70 80 90 100 miles an hour and uh, all I can do is envision myself driving into the uh, into the median, hoping that I can uh, end my life that way. Uh, explain to her that the reason why it took me a number of years to even get a weapon in my own home was because I was unsure of how I would be with a weapon in my home and know that I would possibly kill myself with it. I would tell her that you know, I envisioned uh, jumping off of a very high building and and just finding the peace in the quietness on the way down. I, I kind of want to, at the same time with these thoughts of killing myself, is how far can I push it? How far can I go? Because I feel pretty invincible pretty untouchable and so I want to see how far I can push it before I actually do die um, which isn't a smart or safe way to live so I was sitting in her in her office and we were sitting across from each other we were coming up to maybe the last 15 to 20 minutes of this session because there was always a, a timer in, in front of that plant on her little side 
table um, in between the two chairs, there was always a timer there. So I always knew we were click on the clock. So I would constantly watch the clock when I was in her office, which is probably not helpful. But she was like, hey, I've got something I've been working on. I wanted to see if, let me get your thoughts. It's like, I haven't really asked anybody yet, but I want to get a uh, veteran's opinion on it. And so what Shauna did was she had this, uh, I think it was an Altoids box or something, uh, like a mint tin can box. And it was pretty small. It's like, all right. So she showed it to me. Um, she had this picture of Shirley Temple on the front of it. And inside of it, she had uh, a pair of keys, a, pa- a pair of uh, gunlock keys. The f- photo on top is supposed to be someone that you love. So like your husband, your wife, somebody that you have a huge, huge emotional and physical connection with. And on the inside is the key to that gun lock. And the key to that gun lock is in there because to open that up and get that, to use your weapon that's already locked up, you need to go through this person, that gatekeeper essentially. And she was just kind of like, you know, we want to slow down that time frame from when a veteran grabs our weapon loads it and attempts to shoot themselves or attempts suicide i was like you know hey i think this is a really great idea you know the session ended so then a couple days went by and uh, my wife and i we had i forget what we were arguing about something um i think i had kicked like a hole in a wall in the garage or something you know and i was having those thoughts of hurting myself and I was sitting there and I was thinking about this concept that Sean had brought to me and I just couldn't let it go. I was searching around my garage, I was looking in my office and I was just kind of like, what the heck am I going to put stuff in? I was like, oh, I was like, well, let me grab this ammo box. It was a small little plastic ammo can, about the size of an iPhone Plus. Uh, So I was like, well... I was like, I have a weapon. I was like, I keep it locked up. Then we grab those keys, and I grab that ammo can, that little tiny plastic one, and I put my gun safe lock keys inside of there. And I was like, cool. All right, I don't feel any different. Well, I grabbed that little ammo can, and I was holding it in my hand, sitting on the floor of my office. My back leaned up against the closet and just kind of holding it. When I opened up that ammo can and I looked at the keys sitting in there, I was kind of like, well, what, what's the point of having these keys in there? What am I even here for? Like, what am I living for? What am I, what's that driving force? And a huge part of it is um, my partner, my spouse, my wife, uh, Monica. She is one of the reasons why I am breathing and living today. So I, I put a photo Um, I think it might have been a wedding photo in there. And I was like, you know what? I was like, something that I live for and that keeps me going is the memory of going through that situation of being shot. And so I put those those rounds in there, those, the rounds that exploded in my face, you know, these are five, five, six caliber rounds. They are uh, brass. They are blown up. They are broken. They are dented. They're cold. 
they are literally falling apart in pieces of shrapnel and I grabbed them off of my ledge in my office and I put them inside the box. I put them inside of my warrior box. They are the most real representation of what death looks like for me. Death looks like a round ripping through my face. I was putting this box together and I didn't really understand what I was doing. It's like, great, now what? I put it away for a while and my wife and I were having some, you know, we had gotten into a pretty big fight and I'd been, I'd been drinking, I'd been doing some drinking, um, so that wasn't, that wasn't very good. But we were at home and I remember we had been fighting for hours, hours and hours and at that point I had I had broken, we had a glass table in the in our kitchen. I had I smashed the glass table. There was glass everywhere in the house. Um, I had tore off two of our doors to the spare bedroom. I grabbed the chairs to the kitchen table, and I was throwing them around the house. I put a hole into our island uh, in the kitchen there. I wish I remember. This is how insignificant the fight was but at that point I was so heated and so fired up and emotional that it wouldn't matter what we were fighting about I can't look at my wife and feel comfortable with being the cause of that much pain in her eyes I was sitting there I was like I need to just end this right now we had been fighting for too long and we weren't getting anywhere, and I was like, I can't keep being the reason for you being unhappy, basically, is what I'm telling her, and I'm thinking it in my mind. At this point, it's dark in my house. It's nighttime. Um, I'm walking past her, trying to move her out the way. Um, I walk into my bedroom. I get my... I grab my weapon. I grab my... Uh, Rock Island, 1911, 45, and I get really, really pissed off because I'm mad that there's a freaking lock on it. And for the split second, I was thinking to myself, where the f, f are the keys at? And I was like, mother <laughs> I was like, damn it. I was like, all right. I was like, I know where the damn keys are. And she was literally grabbing at my shirt, you know, pulling at me, like, put this freaking gun away he's like what the hell are you doing I'm pushing her away I'm trying to get this ammo can so to get the key so I grab the ammo can and I open it you know I have the weapon in one hand but it's got a lock on it and I grab the ammo can with the other hand I'm like damn it so I dump it out I just grab it and I just dump it because it's dark in the room we didn't have any of the lights on there's a light post that is sitting like directly in front of the window and no matter how dark I wanted in my bedroom I can never get it dark because this window always has a light on it at night so there's always this beam of light that shines through and it hits the same section of the couch I mean the same section of the carpet every night I happen to dump the ammo can out right inside of that that light spot because I was like well I need to see this I need to get this freaking key 
forgot that I'd put a bunch of stuff in there. And I'm like, well, you know, I'm pretty irritated already. And I'm like, well, now I got to, I have to go through all this crap in order to get to this key. Monica's in front of me. She's got one hand on my wrist that's holding my weapon. So that she's got her other hand kind of on my left bicep, uh, trying to push me back, basically. And I'm just angry. I'm just mad. I'm like, I need to take myself out. I need to kill myself right now. I need to stop this pain and suffering. And if I'm the cause of this pain and suffering, then I am the enemy that needs to go. The keys were so small that they were tucked under all the photos and all the things I had put in there. I'm sifting through and I'm kind of like, I push her out the way a little bit more. She's still holding my right arm and I grab the key. But as I'm going to grab this key, the light hits the the rounds. The light hits the rounds and I don't know, just seeing the rounds there, I kind of just, and seeing the light hit them, it just kind of, uh, it makes me chuckle a little bit. She's wondering like, what the freak man, why the hell also now you're, you're laughing? Um, I don't know. I'm thinking I'm a little irritated because it actually worked. <laughs> kind of taking a breath and then just kind of falling down to the ground and Monica kind of being a little taken back, kind of confused with what the hell, you know? She's like, what the hell are you doing? She's like, stop this. She's telling me, don't do this. Stop stop um and i did i stopped I, I bring my warrior box with me everywhere i go i'm carrying this weight of living for my friends who did die that's why i carry around my neck a, the last a piece of shrapnel that they took out of my hand at walter reed because it actually pokes and actually gets stuck to things and it actually like if i have my backpack on it'll push against my skin so hard that I I feel it. I still think every now and then about harming myself. <laughs> um, it's not really easy to say that, um, but it's true. You know, I wake up in pain every day. I go to sleep and I hurt every day. Like, what is the point of all this? But I've I've trained myself to to not kill myself. for sharing his story with the staff. Brian brought his warrior box into the studio to talk with us. Brian's currently finishing his master's degree in social work at Cal Berkeley. His therapist, Shauna, is deeply devoted to working with vets like Brian. She helps them cope with the trauma of war and adjust to their new lives back in the States. Many of Shauna's vets 
described near-death experiences in which they saw the faces and heard the voices of their loved ones, the message is often the same. Don't give up. These stories gave Shauna the initial idea for the Warrior Box. Shauna and Brian are now sharing their ideas with other vets. We're going to have a link to their work at snapjudgment.org. That story is brought to us by producer Jake Halpern. The story is produced by Jake Halpern and Nancy Lopez. Special thanks as well to Megan Kane of Invisibilia for her help. Now then, what happens when a soldier returns to the very spot that changed his life when the shrapnel episode continues? Stay tuned. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the shrapnel episode. Today we're exploring stories of collateral damage. Real people, real stories from their own front lines. And as such, listener discretion is advised. Our next piece begins in the middle of the American War in Vietnam. When a young soldier spent day after sweltering day in the jungle looking for the North Vietnamese Army, the NVA. Snap Judgment. Basically, what we did was we moved up and down the trails and we were, we were looking for what we call meeting engagements, the NVA and, and I and my platoon or my company. The thing about it is you would go sometimes two, maybe sometimes three weeks in a row without seeing anybody. In fact, after about a week or a week and a half, you started to get nervous because you knew you were overdue, you know? And, and then all of a sudden, the world would explode. Things are calm, peaceful, and all of a sudden people are dying left and right. You don't think you're going to be alive two seconds from now. And then all of a sudden it's quiet, it's over with. You uh, pull back to a position you can defend, organize, get your you know, medevac you wounded out, and then you usually spend that night in that location, and then the next day you get up and you just start it all over again. Homer had been marching up and down the Vietnamese hills for seven months. One night, after a particularly gruesome engagement, he was feeling strung out and on edge, so he drank pretty much a whole bottle of Chivas Regal. And he passed out a few hours before the sun came up. And then it was time to get up because the choppers were leaving at 8 o'clock. I had too bad of a hangover to remember much of that morning. <laughs> but anyway, we got on the choppers and we flew up to the valley. And it's about 105 degrees, so it's really hot. During the rainy season, it's, it's really slippery. I mean, slippery to the point where you have to literally climb from root to tree trunk to root to tree trunk. It's like grease, you just go, wow, wide open, you know? Uh, it's so dark on those ridgelines, on top of those ridgelines, that in the middle of the day, you have to use your flashlight to read a map. That's how dark it is. Walk a little ways, walk a little ways, have to stop and take a break because we're about to pass out from the heat. I noticed on the side of the road there, there was just concrete. They kind of scabbed it with concrete 
to keep landslides from coming down because apparently it was a landslide prone area. And as I'm looking, I notice at the top of the ridge line, there's this huge tree. I mean, it's triple canopy jungle, and this tree is like maybe 30, 40 feet above all the other trees in the jungle. It's the most, it's an amazing tree. We had just stopped for a, for a water break, and around the bend in the trail comes this guy out of Soldier of Fortune magazine. Brand new clean pith helmet, brand new sparkling clean weapon, clean fatigues. I mean, he is spotless. He looked like he was on a photo shoot or something. So I figure at first that I'm hallucinating. I mean, I, I, that's what I really thought. I thought I was hallucinating. I thought the heat had finally gotten to him. I'd overdone it. And I realized, oh my God, it's, it's CNVA. He's gonna shoot me. He had on this, this regular North Vietnamese Army um, fiber helmet. So he was obviously Vietnamese. He had his rifle slung over his shoulder. He was just diddy bopping. When he first came around the corner, his head was down. He was looking down. He wasn't even looking up, you know. He didn't think there was anybody in the world out there. I yelled at him, Chu Hoi, because that's what I'd seen on all the, the surrender pamphlets the, the, the we, our PSYOPs people would put out. So I don't know whether that confused him or not. But the point is, he was still trying to get his weapon down and shoot me. Um, so I waited and I waited. And then at the last second, just before he had leveled down it to where it was pointed directly at me, I did the, the typical uh, infantry thing, a three-round burst. Stitched him um, once through the abdomen, once through the, once literally right through the heart. And I go up and he's, when I get there, he, like I say, he's, his hair is perfectly groomed, he's, he's clean, he's, he's out of place. And when I get there, he's still alive enough that he's, he's got life in his eyes. And I got to actually see the, if you've ever seen someone die, there's a moment where there's no life there anymore. It kind of, the, the glossiness disappears and the tension disappears and, and you know they're gone. And, and I saw that. That gets you, I mean, whether it's the bad guy or the good guy, it gets you, I've seen that. I told the squad leader to, you know, check for documents. When we went through his, um, his, his uniform and all, he had um, some letters home. There was some, uh, a mathematics notebook and, and a medical notebook. And we decided that we couldn't take the body because the heat, when the heat, we just couldn't haul that much load. Um, so what we did is we took the documents and the weapon and we beat feet, we moved on out. The next day, when they were waiting for the helicopter that would take them back to base camp, Homer's squad leader handed him the notebook that they had taken off the dead man's body. And when we got down to the valley the next day, waiting for the helicopters to come in, that's when I got the documents from the squad leader. I was just blown away. He had taken a, a small notebook, maybe maybe five inches wide, six inches long, and he had wrapped it with tape so that it would hold together in the, in the jungle. And he had taken two or three different color pens and markers, and he had drawn anatomical drawings, medical drawings, of nerve and blood vessels and muscle structures and all that kind of stuff that he had copied out of textbooks while he was going undergoing training um, to show 
to other medics in the field when he was trying to explain things. And I mean, these, these drawings were so beautiful, they're works of art. I mean, literally. Um, wow. And then the realization then came to me that he was a medic. And of course, everybody loves, respects, and takes care of the medics uh, on either side. Um, they're the good people <laughs> in, a, in a horrible situation. Homer took the notebooks. He carefully wrapped them in brown paper, and he mailed them home to his mother. Other guys sent weapons home and souvenirs. Um, I just thought that would be a good souvenir of my time in combat. Um, I didn't know the significance of it at all. It just, it just looked really cool. Well, by the time I got back at the end, a year later at the end of my second tour, and I completely forgot about the incident altogether. It, it was probably 25 years, quarter of a century. After I retired, then I um, decided to put up a website about some of my Vietnam experiences and contact my friends. So I asked mom if she could find the, the audio tapes, the little cassette tapes that I'd sent back from Vietnam. And she said, there's a package here in brown paper that you asked me to save but not to open. And instantly I remembered what it was. I mean, it's like I couldn't think, I couldn't move. I do remember I was, see, I'm trembling right now, I'm trembling. The moment she said the brown paper, I, it all came back, and, I, and it, all of it came back. I can remember the look in his eye. I can remember the look in his eye when, when, he, when he wasn't alive anymore. The sun was coming in the window. Um, it was late afternoon, and, and it was wintertime, so it was warm. The first book I opened was the one with the medical drawings in it. That was incredibly beautiful. And they were still just as vibrant and rich color as they had been the day I first saw them. And uh, I thought, you know, I don't know the family or anything about them, but I'm quite certain they would love to get their hands on this. So Homer decided to try to return the notebook to the family of the man he'd killed. He scanned some pages into his website, and eventually a Vietnamese journalist took the images and printed them in a Vietnamese newspaper. Almost immediately, the family of the fallen soldier came forward to claim the notebook. My wife and I first knew about his notebook from a newspaper named Education Times that a cousin brought to us in which uh, they on in, on which they printed um, several notebooks uh, and we saw the name there Hoàng Ngọc Đảm uh, my brother's name there we we knew from for sure that it's him the medic's name was Wang Ngoc Dam or Dam for short and all his family knew was that he'd never come home from battle this is Dam's brother-in-law Wang Min Dieu he's talking to us through a translator uh, when we uh, when we knew that it was him, we had a very uh, mixed feeling, both uh, sad, sadness, as, and also uh, some anxiety, but, but also uh, so glad that we finally uh, found uh, found him, and um, we all we hope that Homer could uh, himself bring the, the notebook to us. 
cái thời đấy thì có thể nói là cái cuộc sống. He was a very good brother and after the war I have also tried several occasions to find the remains of my brother-in-law Hoàng Ngọc Đảm. Getting back Dom's notebook was getting back a small piece of Dom, which was wonderful. But his family also felt like they were one step closer to finding Dom's lost remains. Because in the in the Buddhist tradition, they need to get some part of, of the body back to the to the family burial ground. Đối với người Việt Nam chúng tôi, for us Vietnamese, uh, generally, it's very important to find the remains of the deceased, and it's even more important to find the remains of the soldiers who have fallen in the wars. Um, they, they, the term "wandering souls" refers to the fact that if they don't get anything back to bury in the burial plot, then they think the, the soul wanders aimlessly um, for eternity. Because there are so many people still missing in Vietnam from the war, a sort of cottage industry has popped up to help connect families with their lost relatives. There are private investigators, a government agency, recovery companies. There are also lots of sort of spiritual guides who offer their services to help families find the missing remains of their loved ones. The family had, had contacted, um, after the war, had contacted a psychic. Uh, fortune tellers, what they call them over there. We've got our psychic mediums here in the States also. But this lady has apparently some uh, incredible reputation for being dead on with her predictions. And they contacted her and asked her about Tom. The medium said she gleaned a lot of information from the notebooks, spiritual information that could help lead to Dom's remains. And she thought Homer's presence could help them guide the search. So the family asked Homer if he would come back to Vietnam. When Snap Judgment returns, Homer's surprising decision that changes everything. When the Snap Judgment Shrapnel episode continues, stay tuned. NYC Studios. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the shrapnel episode. My name is Lynn Washington, and when last we left, Homer Steedley was contemplating his return to Vietnam at the request of the family of the man that he had slain in war. Snap Judgment. I thought it very important that they have some closure. Um, I kind of said yes before I thought it through. <laughs> and uh, and as it got closer and closer time to go over, of course, my, my anxiety level went up. I mean, think about it. I'm going back to a foreign country on the other side of the planet, going into the home of a family whose son I had killed. Um, and yeah, I was, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, for all I knew, one of the, the veterans in the community would shoot me. We got in around midnight and I got off the plane and I had forgotten how hot it is. The sensations were just like, whoa, okay, <laughs> I remember this. <laughs> After a drive out of the city and through the countryside, Homer walked into Dom's family's home. 
Well, when we got there, I, I initially had a bowl of fruit, which I brought into the family home and, and placed on the altar. They have an altar in the family home to Dom and, and his other brother that died in the war also. And they worship their, their ancestors, their elders, and so they keep a, a shrine there. And I placed the fruit there. And of course, um, the younger sisters over there, real scary, right? Howling and, and grimacing and, and speaking in tongues, as we would call it. This is tape that was recorded by an American radio reporter that was with Homer. It was about 10 years ago, and for some reason, this is some of the only tape that still exists from this trip. Another one of Dom's brothers, who goes by Cot, says the woman speaking in tongues was their sister-in-law. He says they think she was channeling another brother who also died in the war, Wang Damchi. I believe uh, that um, her, her body might uh, has been was taken by our second brother Wang Dangqi then and he's and I and all this time I can hear this wailing and this someone saying strange things that even to me didn't sound like Vietnamese and um, a lot of really loud wailing like someone's really upset and I go in and boy I at, th- at that point, when I first saw her, I was <laughs> almost turned around and left. I mean, she was completely out of it. They said she was getting messages from Dom about what was going to happen and what needed to take place and, and so forth and so on. And, uh, but she was gesturing and she was arching and her, her throat was bulging and she was gnashing her teeth and wailing really loud and struggling. And I'm like, two feet away from her as I walked past to go to the, to the altar, you know, so, whew, boy, that was pretty emotional. And then I get up to the altar and I set the fruit down, and just as I set the fruit down, I see Dom's picture over there, and he's staring at me. I mean, and then I go to the other side of the room and sit down after I've um, said my little prayers and, and Roth is sticking on, I go sit down and I sit on the opposite side of the table facing the altar. And again, I look up, and he is staring directly at me still. And for the next hour and a half, every time I get distracted a little bit and I relax, I find myself looking over there, and there he is again. It's like he was, I'm here. I'm glad you made it, (laughs) you know. The sister-in-law settled down, and she and the rest of the family and Homer all sat down to put together the clues they had that might help them find Dom's bones. They took the information the medium told them when she first saw the notebook. Then they added information they'd gotten from the military about remains buried in the region where Homer shot Dom. And and the goal was to find his remains and and get him back to the village cemetery. uh, Um, Yes, we had a lot of hope that we would find his remains. Early on, um, in the few minutes after the the meeting where we planned where we were going to go and what we were going to do, um, they said that they thought that Dom and my spirit were linked. And, that, and that's why they thought Dom would be helping us on our search. Dom's sisters and brothers and Homer, two American reporters, someone from the American embassy and the Vietnamese TV crew, all set out on a two-day journey. Um, it was quite an entourage. 
Um, so our goal was to go to the, the military cemetery and look for Don's remains. On the second day, when they were caravanning by van, the family got a call on one of their mobile phones. The Vietnamese authorities had a problem with Homer going to the cemetery. They're very protective of their, of their war dead, and because I was an American, they didn't know what my motives were. So because I was there, instead of being helpful, it turned out I was a hindrance to their, to their efforts. So Homer waited in a minivan outside the cemetery in the thick, wet heat while the family snuck inside. Several hours later, Dom's family reappeared, covered in dirt. When they got out, they were just bubbling with um, enthusiasm. And, 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 it, and they came up to me and they had this, this cardboard box that, that you get shower heads out in from the, from the Walmart or someplace like that. And then one of them, uh, I think the older brother, took and wrapped a Vietnamese flag, um, North Vietnamese flag around it. And then I realized what it was. And one of his sisters held up her hands, covered in red mud. And she said, I, I dug him up with my bare hands. I, I'm, I, these hands are bringing my brother home. And, and she was, um, she, it was funny, she was, she was crying, and yet she was also um, grinning from ear to ear at the same time. When, when we uh, came to the cemetery, so we, we all believed that it, it must be our, uh, our brother. Now, whether that was actually Dom, or one of the other unknowns, we'll never know. But at least it gives the family closure to bring something back to the village. Um, it makes them feel good. But with so many things happening on that trip, the way they did, um, I have to believe it really was Tom's remains. I mean, I really do. After we'd found the remains, we had to drive back to a place where we could get on a railroad car to, to go back to Hanoi. And the family would like, said they would like to stop somewhere along the pass and have a little ceremony and consecrate the remains. They asked me if I knew where, where the spot was, and I told them, well, I didn't think I could remember that detail, you know. So I said, just pull over whenever you feel the urge, you know. Well, we drive and we drive and we drive and we drive, and they suddenly decided to pull over. There's just enough room for us to pull off the road. We walk around and look around, and it looks like a good spot. So they're setting up a little altar. They're putting um, joysticks in the ground, had pictures of Dom and his brother, and remains with a Vietnamese flag, North Vietnamese flag over it. The TV crew was with us, and they'd set up this big, heavy tripod. Must have weighed 40 pounds. Well, it, it's a clear day. About that time, a gust of wind came out of nowhere. I mean, a powerful gust of wind. Blew the, that heavy tripod over and broke the TV camera. Thật ra đây là một cái kỷ niệm nó đặc biệt đến giờ. Um, this is a, a memory that until, even until now I, I still I still feel shaken to to think of that. Uh, there was then a very strong wind and the camera of the TV station got uh, crashed down and it broke. So we couldn't do anything with that. The translator of, of, uh, of the group said that he has a personal camera, so he took it out and we planned to use it, but it broke down too. Four cameras, on, we couldn't use any of them. And meanwhile, while all that's going on, um, everybody just left me alone and I walked off by myself a little bit and I'm standing there 
looking across the valley, remembering it. And uh, I turn and I look up at the ridgeline. There was this concrete uh, facing on the opposite bank to keep landslides from occurring right at the beginning there. I'm a little bit disconcerted. I'm a little bit emotionally overwhelmed. And then I walked a little bit further and I got a clear sight for the first time at the top of the ridgeline. And there was the tree I had used as a marker when we went up the ridgeline. It's triple canopy jungle and this tree was another 30 or 40 feet higher than the tallest tree in the triple canopy jungle. It was still like an amazing tree. And what had happened is we had walked up there. Well, that's when we bumped into Dom and that's where I killed him at the base of that tree. And, and I'm standing there and I'm, I'm, at that point, I'm about to lose it because it all hits me. I'm like, God, this, this is just, I can't believe they stopped at this point. You know, they had no clue and they stopped at this point. To be honest with you, I thought I was wrong. I mean, I thought it couldn't possibly be. There was a couple of moments when I was like literally trembling and, and, and then I just broke out of it and put it in the back of my mind, tried to not think about it. He was too scared to tell anyone what he'd realized. The entire entourage began the long trip back to Dom's home village. First in the convoy of minivans, and then they boarded an overnight train. And the whole time, Homer was silently fascinated and disturbed by what he knew about the place they had randomly stopped on the roadside. So later that night, in, uh, when we got back to the train, um, Homer got very shaken, shaken, and he, he said, I can't believe it. And um, he said that the place, the very place that we stopped, uh, in the afternoon was the was a location that uh, uh, Homer met uh, Dan. The group got quiet. They rested the showerhead box with Dom's remains on the windowsill. Everyone said that they were both at peace and a little uncomfortable, nervous. <laughs> We we were shaken. We were uh, staggered too by after we, we knew that they kept calling uh, my my wife at home on phone and telling her to uh, to delight the the incense on on my brother's um, altar. So say you could help us. Uh, he he would help us to go home safely. Yeah, we, we took the long train route. Um, you got to see the seaside on one side and, and, and the flat uh, rice paddy lands on the other and the mountains and the jungles. So you got to see basically the entire um, landscape of Vietnam. And, and I mean, I just sat there and just absolutely spellbound. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, wow, what an incredible family. I mean, think about it. They opened their hearts their arms to me in spite of the fact that I killed the youngest son. Think on my deathbed when it finally comes, um, if I have a slow death, which I hope I don't. I hope I get run over on my motorcycle when I'm looking the other way. But if I do have a slow death, I'm sure that as I'm dying, and I know I'm dying, I will be thinking of my family and friends. But I think in the moment that I die, in that split second before I leave, 
my last thought will be about Dom because I'll be looking forward to meeting him. Um, oh, God. I'll be looking forward to meeting him, and I think we'll meet as equals. There are many, many people to thank for their help in this story. Of course, Homer Steedley. You can find a link to his website at snapjudgment.org. And a big shout out to the Hong family and our translator in Vietnam, Chow Ngo. I want to thank the folks at the Center for Emerging Media and Jessica Phillips for providing some of the tape from Homer's original visit to Vietnam. And lastly, enormous thanks to Wayne Carlin, who wrote a book on Homer and Dom and who helped us out with the research for this story Find a link to the book, Wandering Souls, on our website, snapjudgment.org. The original sound design for this piece was by Renzo Gorio, and it was produced by Anna Sussman and Eliza Smith. Now, please note, if you missed even a moment of that story, we've got the whole thing available for you right now. Just get the podcast, snapjudgment.org. Now, if you're looking for more amazing storytelling, including the soundtrack of silence where one man tries to hear everything he can before losing his hearing entirely, or follow Snap into San Quentin State Prison for the Ear Hustle special, all of this and more awaits you right now for free on the Snap Judgment Podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Snap is produced by the team that will stop at nothing for nothing. Please give it up. For the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Pat Masini Miller, Anna Sussman, Nancy Lopez, Eliza Smith, Renzo Gorio, Adiza Egan, Liz Max, Shayna Sheely, Leon Morimoto, Teo Ducat, and Jasmine Aguilera. And even though this is not the news, no way is this the news. In fact, you could run faster and further than you've ever run in your life. Then look around to realize. You were standing in the very same place you started. Even then, you would still not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is WNYC.